Welcome to the Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a director in the Washington, D.C. area, and with me are... I'm Pai Chen Bui, a pop culture journalist and contributor to USA Today. And I am Anya Crittenden, an editor and writer for Entertainment Earth News. Okay, so today, for our first episode of 2016, we are doing an episode on Quentin Tarantino, influenced by his new movie that just came out, The Hateful Eight. So we're going to be doing a review of, Hate, of Hateful Eight and kind of talking about the running themes that go through his movies and also, since we're big cinema buffs and Tarantino is a big cinema buff, talking about like his influences from cinema history and all that kind of stuff. So, guys, what did you think of The Hateful Eight? Well, I feel like I'm perhaps a little biased. <laughs> I am... I think I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I might be the biggest Tarantino fan of the three of us. I'd say so. Yes. I I love Quentin Tarantino. He's probably my favorite director, um, in large part thanks to the fact that we have the same birthday. Just quick shout out. That's awesome. Like, Tarantino, if you're listening, we should do a birthday party together one day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he'll take you up on that offer, too. (laughs) You guys just watch Um, movies in the New Beverly all the time. All the time. Um, I loved The Hateful Eight. Um, I love a, a lot of things of what he does. I remember Inglorious Bastards was my first film by him, and it, like, really hit me. I remember I saw it on August 29th, 2009, which was a Saturday. This movie changed I your saw, life. It did, No, it really did. Like, Inglorious Bastards was that a shift for me in my appreciation of film and when I kind of realized what film could do and, like, how powerful it could be. And that's when I started to think more seriously about it. And wanting to pursue it. So, thanks Tarantino. So, I loved it. I think it's... I think it's a hard film. The Hateful Eight. Um, on purpose. And we can discuss this a bit more later. But I think it's very relevant. Very well done. And that score by Morricone. Whew! So, yeah. I'm a big fan. I love it. So, did you see it in um, 70mm? Because this movie was distinguished by being filmed in 70mm, which was the same format that uh, big epic movies like Ben-Hur, Lawrence of Arabia were filmed in. And it was funny because I, he, Tarantino used this grand format to film a movie that took place basically in one room. But see, here's the thing. I've heard people say that and they criticize it for that. Mm-hmm. But... If you watch the film, I think we all saw it in 70mm, right? Yes, yes the Roadshow um, yes. edition. Which I loved. You know, it's a little it's a little ridiculous. It's, you know, like, you're kind of just like, ah, oh, Tarantino, of course you would. But you, it's great. That's an overture, an intermission. Like, there's something kind of charming about that, especially as, like, cinephiles. Plus, it's a three-hour um, movie, so the intermission really helped. It yeah. does really help. Although it didn't feel like three hours to me. I feel like that when the intermission hit, I was just like, what? Like, yeah. How it, I guess, how it built so fast. The film really builds. It's paced yeah. really well. Um, but I was going to say the 70mm with the one room, I've heard criticisms against that, but I, I really like it because this wide screen, there's things going on in the background, and as kind of a murder mystery, like, paranoia film, I feel like there are things going on that, like, you could look at and kind of start piecing together things. Like, he's not doing... He's doing everything intentionally, both foreground and background. Mm-hmm. And he wants that, like, kind of wider screen and, like, bigger space to kind of drop things here and there. Like, his characters are all doing something. Mm-hmm. And they're doing something very intentionally. I was a big fan of the 70 millimeter too, because I don't think... I took it as seriously as you, like, oh, this is his vision as director. I just saw it as Tarantino's way of kind of trolling the audience as being like, you expect this really grandiose film. Instead, (laughs) I'm just going to do really weird close-ups of Samuel L. Jackson's face from, like, the strangest (laughs) angles and kind of make you uncomfortable in that kind of way. And the thing I, I see about, like, Tarantino is that he kind of, he has fun as a director. Like, you know, he has, like, a you know, an artistic vision. He's an auteur director. Um, he has very distinct visual style, but I think that he has fun with his films, and that's like what distinguishes him. Yeah, well, I feel like whenever you watch Tarantino film, you know how much he loves it. Mm-hmm. Like you can feel that passion yeah. in yeah. all of his films, and it makes it really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And I think even even though most of this movie is set in one cabin, and, uh, there are some great wide shots, like between scenes and transitions and stuff, uh, especially when. 
like the characters are making their way to the cabin in the beginning of the movie. Just mm-hmm. these grand shots mm-hmm. of, you know, middle America in the 1800s, just in the snow, mountains everywhere. Yeah, that, that kind of reminds me, um, one of my favorite shots in the whole film, I don't know, maybe I was just very excited about a new Tarantino film, maybe I was just like in my seat, like shaking with excitement, but that <laughs> first, that first shot after the overture, Oh yeah. when it's on like the, um, Jesus on the cross, and it's like oh, an extremely slow zoom out mm-hmm. with Morricone's like theme for the film. And it's just, like, this theme is building, and it's slowly zooming out. That was just, like, I was just, like, we are in for a ride the second that started. I love that shot. I felt like it set the tone for the movie really well. Yeah, I, I'm i going to complain a little bit about prestige films and Oscar films these days and how they all look so much the same. And yeah. Tarantino, like... He, even though he kind of is seen as a prestige director, he never really falls in that trap of, you know, doing a boring period piece. Like, he's not Tom Hooper, you mean? Tom Hooper. (laughs) (laughs) Or he's not, you know, one of the many directors that did Invitation Game or The Theory of Everything, because I get those movies confused stylistically. Yeah, and Willoughby will know that I ranted about those two movies getting nominated last year because. Both of them were very similar British prestige flicks start about a troubled British genius and white guy, genius white guy, and who has a supportive wife or woman friend, yeah, who exactly. helps them along in their past. Yeah, although their- I would argue that the theory of everything is the better film. Oh yeah, I'd say so. I'd, too. I definitely agree. I'd see that again, um, but Imitation Game is ironically an imitation of the theory of everything. Yeah. But anyways, uh, Tarantino is never Trap. boring. That's the point. He is always... Yeah. Partially the films he's directed by. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he's not... He is more of, like, a grindhouse kind of Western kung fu. Like, he has these influences that I think aren't normally the influences of a director like Tom Hooper. Yeah. That's true. He kind of takes, like, these B-movie genres that are, like, seen as kind of seedy and not really um, taken seriously by people. So he takes, like, you know, the kung fu movie, the revenge flick, the gangster movie, um, and just, I guess, transforms them almost in a way with, like, these really high t- high techniques and will bring them to, like, the mainstream audience in that way. And he has, like, this love for these B-movie genres, which is so fun because they're not... Um, they can't be, like, shoehorned into, like, you know a generic prestige flick. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think you see that in all of his films. And I think if we kind of kind of jump into him as a director and influences and everything, I think one of the things about him is that he is consistent. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, you know, you might say this movie's better than this movie of his, but like in every one of his films he has consistent visual cues, he has those great music choices. And the fact that he's had the same editor up until her death in 2010, so I think from Reservoir Dogs to Inglorious Bastards, the same editor really helped this kind of cohesion. I didn't know this. Who is this editor? Her name is Sally Menke, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, she passed away in 2010 due to heat stroke, um, but she at 56, so quite young. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was his editor for all of his films. And she was fantastic. Um, Django was dedicated to her. Oh wow, I didn't know that. And you can yeah. you can definitely tell there's a there's an editorial, and not editorial in the sense of like overall vision, but like an editing change between uh, Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained. I think um, most of Tarantino's movies have a very like like you said they're very strictly like Tarantino esque. But Django Unchained was like the first movie where. It, it almost not not a maturity, but like it was definitely different than like even Inglorious Bastards. It was it was or, almost grander in a way. I don't know. I was actually not that big a fan of Django because I felt like it was almost too over the top, like too Quentin Tarantino unleashed. Um, Unchained, you would unt- say. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, like, because I really love Inglorious Bastards, and I feel like it's grounded in this sort of. Um, 
I guess, suspense or, suspense or tension that is, like, running mm-hmm, throughout the film. Whereas Django just kind of goes with this revenge concept and runs with it. And yeah. it gets, like, a little bit over the top, especially, like, in the second half. Um, it's definitely more wish fulfillment, I think, even than Inglorious Bastards, which, you know, ended they World War II Hitler. and killed Hitler. The alternative <laughs> history of World yeah. War II. Exactly. Yeah. So, I don't know. I, that's actually, going back to, to Hateful Eight, that's why I liked Hateful Eight a little bit more than Django, because because it was set in one room, and it was, like, a very intimate character piece, almost. Um, it felt more, like, grounded and raw, I think. Yeah, which I yeah. Liked. I'm a big fan of those kind of pieces, too, mm-hmm. like those kind of character movies, um, instead of just, like, sweeping grand westerns, which Django was. Um, I don't know. I think Django had really strong characters, and Leonardo DiCaprio's performance was great. But, Fantastic. yeah, I feel like it went off the rails a little bit towards the end. Yeah. I think the dinner scene in Django was way too long, mm-hmm. um, but that's just my opinion. Uh, but I think The Hateful Eight is I, I see people comparing it to the hateful eight is just a very long version of the opening scene of inglorious bastards and i think that mm. that is apt to say but i also think it's much more than that mm. because it definitely is like every character ha- has their own motivations going on and that you don't know until like like basically like everything switches on at one point and you you think that one person is in control of the situation and turns into Another person is in control, and you really don't know. You're trying to keep up, and it's really easy to keep up. It's not a difficult movie to understand. No. Mm-hmm. It's a very easy movie, but it's also very complex emotionally, and you're wondering, like, you know, who should I be rooting for in this situation? Because they're all kind of, like... Hateful. Hateful, and, and like, uh, like you, you think, oh, I'm rooting for Sam Jackson, but then he says stuff that he's done in the past where you're like, oh, that's a little rough mm-hmm. to hear or to also see because they do some flashbacks. But then you're like, well, is he making it up? Is he not making it up? Yeah, you don't know how much of that story is true. I like yeah. that unreliable narrator thing, too. Yeah. Same. But then you have the reliable narrator of Quentin Tarantino himself in the second act. Yeah. We were, we didn't know who it was. We were, we were trying to figure it out. It was Tarantino. Okay. You must have been putting on, like, a, a narratorial voice because it, it didn't, didn't sound, sound like, like it. him. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, you would, Tarantino. Yeah. You cheeky man. Like, there hasn't been a narrator t- up until this point, and suddenly you come in and you're like, all right. <laughs> well, that's kind of like Inglorious Bastards has Sam Jackson as an narrator. And I was like, that's so weird, because it's like, he throws in a narrator at the points where you don't think they're, it's not necessary. He, like, flouts narrative convention, but in a way that makes sense to it, or that, like, actually makes sense with the movie and kind of moves it along. So yeah. That's... Yeah. And also the narration comes at a point where you kind of need it mm-hmm. because it tells things that we didn't see before because uh, mm-hmm. it kind of goes, flashes back a couple minutes. I mean, it kind of turns the movie into an elaborate, bloody version of Clue. Yeah. Which I loved. <laughs> kind of, even yes. though, you know, like it was raw and weird and intimate, even it, it turning into that kind of movie, I was just like, I'm along for the ride. I'm enjoying this. And yeah. Without spoiling anything, let's just say one name, Channing Tatum. Ah. Oh. Well, he's in the credits, so that's not a big spoiler that he's in but the movie. Well, let's not Channing. reveal who he is, but we'll no, just say. We, won't say, we won't say who he is or where he comes in, but like top-notch Channing Tatum. And I hope people see this, those like pretentious cinephiles who are like, ugh, Channing Tatum. I hope they see him in this and they change their opinion because Channing Tatum is so fantastic. So good. Love him. I want to say that I'm really proud of Channing Tatum. Having watched him, like, in Step Up, I've seen him grow. And, like, you know, he, when he entered Hollywood, he was kind of seen as, like, this meathead type of generic action hero that, you know, you see a lot of um, the movie industry try to push. So you have your Jai Courtney's, you have your Sam Worthington's, and they try to put them in, like, their next big action flick, and, of course, it fails. And then they disappear into obscurity because... Good riddance, because they're charmless and terrible. But Channing Tatum totally evaded that practice. Like, he was in G.I. Joe, and, you know, that flopped. But then he went and did a lot of, like, comedies. He did 21 Jump Street. He made a bunch of weird cameos in, like, uh, what's that Seth Rogen movie? Uh, this is the End. This is the End. And he, did, he, like, he did a lot of romantic movies, too. He which did romantic movies. Maybe are not his best, like, better mm-hmm. than his comedies, but I don't think he's bad in them. Yeah, but he... By like, any... He, like... Rich. 
craft, he um, honed his craft and he became like a well-respected comedic actor, which yeah. is amazing. And he like, you know, he escaped that trap of being the generic action hero. And I'm very proud of him for that. And, and then he kind so of excited. also, he subverts it in movies that he's, oh, that he's in. Oh, definitely. Um, where you think that he's going to be like, there are moments in 22 Jump Street where you thought he's just like the, or 21 Jump Street where he's like the dumb jock, but then he completely, is, you know, is like super smart in some cases. Like mm-hmm. he's, he's not smart in like, what you would think he would be, but he is like in other places. It's, it's, it's great. And, uh, he's also incredibly funny. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think, and I think he does a really good job in this movie at, with the Tarant, with Tarantino's dialogue, which is very difficult to do, especially cause it's like quick, di- quick dialogue, but long takes. So it's a lot of monologuing at some point. Um, and I think he really shined in the role that he's done. He's in. I also think moving on to another actor, Walton Goggins was Walter. No, no I it's, it's Walton. Walton? Walton? Is yeah. it really? It's Walton. it's Walton. Have I been saying the wrong name this whole time? Yeah, because I got, like, the, like, broadsheet or whatever, like, they yeah. gave out at the beginning, and it said Walton Goggins. Mm-hmm. I was like, I told Willoughby, I'm like, I thought this whole time that his name was Walter. No. And I was so flabbergasted. I was it, like, he's Whoa. Walton, but he what? absolutely steals the show from, I was going to bring him up, too. Yeah, from Sam Jackson and... Uh, Which is hard to do. Yeah. And it's just... He, you think that he's... He's kind of like the one-off, almost com- comedic relief character, mm-hmm. but he really grows, and you do, you, you see his his inner work, his inner thinking on his face, and you don't really know like who he's who he's whose side he's on, and then when he has to ch- change sides or like join up with characters he didn't think he'd ever join up with, it, he he really proves that he's a great actor and a great uh, speaker. Yeah, I of think he steals the film. And yes, he was only I feel like hmm? oh he was only in a bit in Django Unchained. He was kind of just a supporting character, but he really is much better in this movie. I don't remember him. He's in like, who is he? Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. one of he's one of Leonardo DiCaprio's goons. Oh, okay. Yeah, I feel like I feel like he steals the film. I feel like he's fantastic. Mm. I really like Samuel. I think Samuel Jackson and Jennifer Jason Leigh give the other two great performances of the film. Yeah. But they almost feel like kind of these pillars or like bookends of the film. Um, as great kind of actors and performers. And then you have Walter got Walton, Walton, (laughs) so weird, Walton Goggins come in and he takes this movie and he does something with it that I wasn't expecting Mm -hmm. from him. Yeah, he doesn't, he is a wild card character, I think, because like he starts off kind of more timid, timid, I guess, but then he kind of changes like his face several times, like, not literally, but, like... The basket's one. Metaphorically, yeah. He, it's very interesting. It's a, it's a very, like, dynamic performance, I think. Yeah. He feels, his character feels kind of naive throughout mm-hmm. most of the film. He's being dictated by other people and kind of being told what to do, and he just feels like this kind of more naive character, especially in the face of, like, Kurt Russell and Samuel Jackson, mm-hmm. who are clearly, like, tougher than him. Yeah, they're kind um, of, like, the two... The two leaders of this hateful age. Yeah, even though he comes in and he's like, I'm the sheriff. No one believes him. No one believes him, yeah. He's not in control of anything. Not really. But by, as the movie keeps progressing, he starts making choices and starts kind of doing things for himself that I think are really interesting. I don't know if that was the case, if this was the case for both of you, but I always felt like he had more of an endgame. Like he had like a more ulterior motive than what he was letting on. Like, it felt the for sheriff. me like he was kind Chris of... Mannix? No, what? I'm sorry? In the sheriff, Chris Mannix? No, yeah, from, like, Watson Dickens. Oh. I don't know why, um, but I felt like he kind of was playing his cards and stuff like that. But this is just, like, my impression of his character. He felt, like, a more, lot more cryptic than what his character was presented as. Well, I think it's because everyone else didn't believe that he was the actual sheriff. Yeah, that might have and, been why. And also of his past in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I think people... Uh, uh, characters in the movie didn't be, did they be, they didn't they didn't see the truth in him so you didn't see the truth in him mm. yeah but also his face didn't tell you the truth because he didn't like he believes he's the sheriff you know he's the sheriff mm-hmm. but you don't really know like if he's really telling the truth or if he's like pretending to, like it's he he plays a really good balance of like sticking to his guns but also having like like, you don't know if he has an ulterior motive. Mm-hmm. And that's this whole film. Like, there's so many moments of paranoia. Like, mm-hmm. at the end, 
Um, we're going to get a little spoilery here, but, like, at the end when Daisy says they have, like, 15 people waiting in Red Rock, like, mm-hmm. do they really? Mm-hmm. Like, do they really actually have, or is it just these people in this cabin, and if you kill them, it's done? Yeah. And yeah. you win. Like, you don't know. You... And then this brings me to the Lincoln letter, which is part of kind of a larger thematic discussion I wanted to get into, because I think that this film is very relevant to today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Intentionally so. Quentin Tarantino has talked about this. Like, this film was shaped by police brutality towards black people in America right now. Interesting. I actually Um, didn't know that. Yeah, he's he's very open about this. Um, Which is why the police were going to boycott the Hateful Eight. Oh, yeah. Part of it. And because of, like, he made comments at a rally. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. About police. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, this film feels very relevant because a lot of people have said, like, they can't kind of accept or, like, they or can reconcile, like, how hateful this movie is. Because, like, in his other films, like, they're just as violent, but the violence feels more entertaining. It's more, like, whereas, over the top and heightened. This one Yeah, is, like, whereas in this one... Yeah. It is brutal, and it is hateful, and he does that, and I don't think Tarantino is the director who does, he does everything with an intention. Yes. Mm-hmm. Every choice he makes is for a reason, and I think in this film he's trying to challenge us, because he's saying, like, this is the way hate manifests, and, like, this is what's happening in America today. Like, there is still so much hate, mm-hmm. and this is his response to that hate. So, wh- you find out that Sam Jackson's Lincoln letter is fake in the film. It wasn't originally fake in the first draft of the script. Mm. It was real. And then once everything started happening in America with Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and all that stuff, Tarantino decided to change that and he made it a fake letter. Mm. And I love that so much because Sam Jackson, the way way he justifies why he faked this letter is as a black man living in America, this is how I disarm white men and make it so you guys won't kill me mm. because I'm black. He had to create this letter to basically protect himself. And it gets very close to home with what we've been seeing in this country. That's interesting. I wonder if people will take that away from the film because, you know, Tarantino is seen as he's not all exactly taken seriously with a lot of his films because they're so heightened and over the top. And, like, he, ha- he presents, like, this hyper-reality that people just, like, you know, they won't exactly be like, oh, this is particularly relevant today to, to, to today. They'll be like, this is good entertainment. So I wonder if, like, even though that's Tarantino's intention, if people will actually, like, come away with that. I came away I with guess, that. Yeah, I think it felt that, pretty clear to me. Mm-hmm. I think maybe it was maybe we we as film buffs kind of look into things deeper than the general public, but mm-hmm. I I got that almost immediately. I was like, oh... Okay. Yeah, like, I got that in the film, but I feel like almost they didn't dwell on it enough. Um, Okay. I mean, I guess it's good, like, they didn't hammer it in, being like, this is about police brutality today. But at the same time, it felt like a moment of, like, character insight for Samuel L. Jackson for me. And not so much about particular social matters. Yeah, that's... That it, I, yeah, maybe it's because I've read about the film and mm. read interviews, but, like, it felt very clear to me. Mm-hmm. Like, that the film worked on its own, just as a film set in, you know, post-Civil War America, but when you look at its themes, how relevant they are today, mm. yeah. and why that's scary, and, like, why people have been like, this is really uncomfortable, I didn't really like this, and I'm just kind of like, it should good. Like, it should be uncomfortable because that is still happening today. Especially with the gender politics that go on in this movie as well. Oh, true. Yeah, which people have been discussing a lot because, like, I feel like those are less obvious than the, like, the racial politics that are happening. You know, like, the second that Sam Jackson reveals his letter to be fake, Kurt Russell reveals himself to actually be, like, a racist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas before he had sort of shown some respect towards Sam Jackson, like, Mm -hmm. the second he lies, he's like, of course, like, I can't trust you people. Yeah, yeah. you know, everyone's really hateful, but, like, people have specifically said the misogyny in this film as being the most uncomfortable part, and it's supposed one of to our... be, like, uncomfortable, though, right? Yes. Exactly. It's not Tarantino being misogynistic, it's his characters. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, he's, and he's not condoning it. Yeah, he's definitely not condoning it. It's like, I think movies like The Wolf of Wall Street walk a, f- a fine line with like everything that goes on, and it's hard to tell if sometimes if that's what the director thinks or if that's just how we should how the character thinks and the director... Oh, see, Wolf of Wall Street is, like, this is a film that I also use as an example of this that I will defend until the day I die, that Wolf of Wall Street is just, like, hatefully, and that Scorsese is never condoning the misogyny. He's not glamorizing he just, it, yeah. yeah. The thing is, hatefully came out the same, or hatefully, Wolf of Wall Street came out the same year as American Hustle. Mm-hmm. And I put those two against each other because American Hustle shoots women in this kind of gross way from the point of view of the director. American House is also a huge mess of a film, and <laughs> I don't think it's worst. a good movie. Yeah. The worst. <laughs> but also, like, it's extremely misogynistic from the point of view of the director. Mm-hmm. Whereas Wolf of Wall Street, Scorsese does everything from the point of view of Jordan Belfort, and you are never supposed to agree with him, mm-hmm. and the movie is never condoning him. So, like, that's the thing, is that, like, Wolf of Wall Street is done from the point of view of the characters, American Hustle's done from the point of view of the director. Mm-hmm. Hateful Eight's done from the point of view of the characters. Yeah. Which is where you can see that Tarantino, he's like, I'm doing this on purpose. Like, you're supposed to be uncomfortable. You're supposed to not like this. And I want you to leave thinking about why you didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of re- evaluating these things. Yeah. And I think that that works really well, in my opinion, in the Hateful Eight. For me, for The Wolf of Wall Street, it didn't so much, I think, because the audience I was in was very on Jordan Belfort's side. So I, I obviously, I was not. But I was like, everyone in my audience was kind of on his side. So I was like, is this the point? Like, I don't, I had to watch it a second time to like understand that it was definitely Scors- Scorsese. Like, it was not his point of view, it was Jordan Belfort's. Yeah. But, I, but it, it walks a fine line of kind of almost to the point of over-glamorizing his lifestyle. But I think that, but in the end, you can tell that Scorsese's like, this is what he did. These are the shitty things he did. You should feel bad that he did all these shitty things. Like, you shouldn't feel you shouldn't feel supportive of him. Whereas with The Hateful Eight, I think it's more clear to me that that was Tarantino's point, was to sh- show that these characters are, like, they treat Daisy... They treat Daisy's character... Not Daisy's character. They treat Daisy badly because they have misogynistic viewpoints but also because she's a criminal and if you if you didn't treat her with with the respect of a a criminal you would say that they're treating her unequally uh in some points uh like if they weren't so harsh and yet i think they are treating her unequally at times i mean there's also character is extremely misogynistic oh he's so yeah i mean like there's a reason that um, Daisy spends most of the film like bruised and battered. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Is some people are saying like the violence shown towards her is he Carantino went too far with it. It's misogynistic, and I can see that. But I think he did that on purpose, and I think you know like as uncomfortable it is, and you could argue that he could have achieved it by not being as uncomfortable. But I think what he tried to do worked. Because you leave that theater with that last shot of her in that cabin. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say how, but it, you guys know what it's, I mean. It's, it's a rough shot. It's a it stays really with you. unsettling shot, yeah. Yeah, and it stays with you, and it's supposed to, because you're supposed to be like, she's a criminal, and she's just as hateful as the rest of them. Mm-hmm. But did she deserve to be treated the way she did? Was. Exactly. So I think it's really interesting the way he challenges you in this film. Yeah, um... I, um, like, with Wolf of Wall Street, and less so with Hateful Eight, but definitely with that, I worry about audiences actually, you know, coming away with these, and actually, it like, these films not perpetuating this sort of viewpoint. Yeah. So, it's, like, it's less so about the directors themselves, because I really respect them and admire, like, them being able to, to take on these topics and do it in such an artful way. But then, like, you know... Do you trust the masses? Do I trust yeah. the masses? It's... I don't, honestly. (laughs) Um, So sometimes I feel like it should be more like hitting you over the head with these kind of messages. But at the same time, it would feel like the director's not respecting you as an audience. So I don't know. It's it's a fine line to walk, like Willoughby said. It is a fine line. I think that Scorsese accomplishes it with Wolf of Wall Street. But I can see how audiences would not see it that way mm-hmm. yeah i can see how they couldn't see i feel like that film is very smart and very sharp and quite biting 
But I can see how audiences wouldn't. Yeah, no, get I definitely saw like it as an unglamorous portrayal of that kind of like of Wall Street of these kind of people. But yeah, it's it's hard for to see to uh, predict how people will come away with that. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I came away with that, but it was also in my mind that most of the audience that that I was in did not come away with that. Like they were on like you were like yeah this guy woo and I was like no. Please don't think that way. Mm-hmm. And that's why The Wolf of Wall Street is not one of my favorite movies because I think it, even though I know what, what Scorsese was trying to do, I think that audiences are not generally as, like, they didn't receive as much of his vision as, as you would think they would. Mm-hmm. So do you think Hate Blade accomplishes that more? Yes, I think it does. I think it's because, because it's so intimate. Every every character action is more overt, and you can definitely tell like what every character. Uh, by the end of the movie, you know like kind of what each character is is thinking and how how they think, and what you should come away with like, you know, what you should think about this character or that character, and, and did this character t- deserve what they got, and everything. Mm. Yeah, okay. because because also Jordan Belfort, he didn't go to he like went to jail but then now he's out he's like doing public speaking yeah about how he how he how shitty how he, how shitty he was as a person but i i'm also like this guy should really he didn't get punished enough yeah basically. he didn't get punished enough and i think that that jordan belfort himself is a very complicated issue mm-hmm. um, yeah so but i i think a lot of these characters in the hateful eight are they some of them get what they deserve others maybe don't it's it's up to the audience to think about that. I mean, they're all pretty hateful. Yeah. Like, that's the thing is, you, there's no person to root for in this film. Maybe like, Obi- at first you think it's Samuel Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. At first you think it's Samuel Jackson, but then it's revealed near the end of the first act that, oh not no, a person. Yeah. he's not who I want to root for anymore. And then you're like, who do I root for? And you don't root for anyone. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Like, people were saying that, like, it's hard, that it's hard because there's no one to root for, and I was like, yes, because we're used to that. We're used to heroes and protagonists that we're supposed to sympathize with. But like I said, this Tarantino wanted this film to be hard. Mm-hmm. He wanted you to think about this stuff. And I think that's why it's important not to have a hero. Except for, yeah, who you're saying, the driver? No, Obi. yeah, Obi. Obi, yeah, so we could all root for Obi. Like, poor Obi. Oh, he didn't deserve this. He had, he had a really shitty day. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. Last Yep. <laughs> it's rough. It's rough. Uh, so, do we have any more thoughts about Hateful Eight? I liked it. Mm. I love Tarantino. Oh. Give him a directing Oscar. <laughs> yeah, he has been avoided by the Oscars, hasn't he? He was. Not for writing, but for directing, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I don't do think want... he's good at this year, but one yeah. year he's a director Oscar. Probably not this year. He'll probably get one of those Lifetime Achievement Awards or something. Yeah. Before we wrap up our um, Hateful Eight discussion, I do want to give a shout out to a Japanese film called Battle Royale. It is a film from 2000 and... 2000. 2001, I thought? I think it's... Two, I think it... Oh, 2000. 2011. Oh, 2000. Never mind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, not 2011. The internet is not reliable, guys. <laughs> um, but it is a movie that greatly influenced Tarantino's films because um, there's one scene in the film... To give a brief summary, Battle Royale is about a dystopian world in which classes of school children who, like, misbehave and are basically, like, terrible gangster-ridden kids will um, be sent to, like, an island and they have, like, collars um, stuck around their necks that will basically explode if they don't participate in these games. And this game is basically, like, to kill everyone else in their class until they're the last one standing. And if they don't participate, they get their head blown off or if they, like, try to escape, head blown off, that kind of stuff. And it is a really interesting um, uh, portrayal, I guess, of, like, the terribleness of reality television and how we kind of gravitate towards, like, this kind of voyeuristic um, sense. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Yeah, and, like, it got a lot of... Hunger Games got a lot of comparisons to it when it came out because um, Battle Royale is, like, the same thing. It's a bunch of kids killing each other, but I think it's a lot more grim and disturbing. 
So and it's a one-off movie. It's not like a trilogy. Oh, it actually is. Oh, is it? <laughs> well, it's like a series. It was based off of some young adult novels. Oh, okay. Well, not young adult, light novels. That's what they're called in Japan. Um, and like anyone reads them, basically. But they were light novels, and then they became a manga, and then they became a film, and that kind of stuff. So I actually watched it because one of and when I was going through my Japanese drama phase, uh, the actor from Light Note from Light Note, from Death Note was in it. He played Light. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love him. He's so good. And I feel like this is a very you reason to watch Battle Royale. Basically. He was actually a really good actor, too. He was yeah. the main character in Battle Royale. But um, uh, tangent aside, Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of this film. He even casts one of the actresses in this film in Kill Bill, um, Chiaki. And he was very influenced by this one scene in the film that was basically started off, you know, very calm. It was kind of like a bunch of girls who were, like, cooped up in this lighthouse and were, like, talking about, like, taking care of this guy and were just, like, making food and stuff. And then it ended, ended in a giant bloodbath, basically. And Tarantino is known for having those kind of scenes in basically every one of his films. And Hateful Eight is basically that scene elongated over two hours, which is a really interesting format considering, like, how overused his bloodbath scene has become in his films. But I think yeah. it really worked as a two-hour film. I think when there's blood in The Hateful Eight, it is very impactful. Like, mm-hmm. when, it, like, when, it, when it's like, there's a scene where suddenly a lot of people start bleeding a lot, and you're like, oh my god, what the hell is happening? And yeah, I think it's an interesting tribute to play to Battle Royale as well. Mm-hmm. Like, taking one scene and stretching it out. Yeah. And, like, a, a little bit like Battle Royale, this one... This Tarantino film, Hateful Eight, feels more brutal, more grim than like his, than other, his other films. And I think, like, yeah, like the imagery itself is very stark. It's like you know a lot of snow. The colors are more muted than mm-hmm. a lot of his other films. Even the blood itself doesn't feel as like candy colored as a lot of his films do. Yeah. So. Interestingly, um, one final note before mm-hmm. we end our discussion. Um, clearly, we are all fans of this film, but interestingly, Tarantino has said that he would like to take this movie to the stage. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, which I could see working. I mean, it is very much like a... It is know, like a, a stage play. Room. Reservoir yeah, was like that. He <laughs> says what he wants, really. He wants to see other actors do something with this material. Hmm. So he wants to get like a new cast, uh, put it on stage, and see kind of what they do with it. That's really cool. I could see that. I'm, I'd be a big fan of that, actually. I kind of wonder, since he has a lot of... Temp- since he does like temporal shifts, like would the stage play have to go in chronological order, or would they do like a flashback and they just have to like tell you in some way that this is you can do more with stage plays than you think yeah like, there are ways to do oh yeah there are, you can, there are you know you can do card you can have a narrator mm-hmm. and narr- as yeah. they do um i think like the last five years takes place out of order yes too. Mm-hmm. that well that one oh, that one's so brilliant the way it weaves back and forth mm-hmm. but yeah so. there are certainly ways to do it but mm-hmm. it'd be a really interesting stage play i think i think so too all right let us move on to the last segment of our episode. We're cutting our episode short for, like, this year. We're going to try to keep it under an hour, guys. And we're also going <laughs> to try and do one a week. Yes. From now on, That's 2016. That's the new goal. Yeah, we're going to be doing one a week, hopefully. Um, not all, all three of us may not be able to make it every episode, but this is going to be our goal from now on, guys. 2016, yeah. New Year's resolution. Yes. It is we can do it. 10 days after the New Year's, but, you know, this is our resolution. <laughs> all right, last segment. Love, hate. Um, Anya? What do you love this week? What do you hate All this right. week? All right. So it is something that I love, and it's funny because it goes entirely against Tarantino. <laughs> it is the exact opposite of what Tarantino is. I love that the ABC show Gallivant is back. I love Gallivant. It's, it's everything that it ticks all, ticks all those boxes for me. I love musicals. I love fantasies. The music is by Alan Menken. Oh, it's, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's... And, you know, some people don't care for it. They think it's too cheesy. They think it's a bad show. But I love it. And I think why I love it is that it's a much smarter show than people give it credit for. And it's extremely self-aware. So it's a mid-season sort of, like, mini-series. It had its first season last January, and everyone expected it to get canceled. Ratings weren't great. It's kind of this show that, like, you could see easily getting axed. And then it got renewed. And the first episode of the second season, which aired last Sunday, was called Suck It Cancellation Bear. 
poking fun at the fact that they fully expected to get canceled. And, like, the first opening song is about that. And it's about, like, not getting canceled and, like, what this show is. It's so funny. It's so self-aware. You have random cameos from people like John Stamos, literally in a single shot, and then he, like, leaves. <laughs> that sounds good. It's so great. Um, so basically what Galvan is, it's, it's a musical fantasy story about kind of this hero in medieval times named Galavant, and he goes to rescue his beloved who has basically been kidnapped by this evil King Richard, and then he finds out that she wants to stay with the king and not go back with him because she's like, I'm a queen now, this is great. <laughs> and she actually becomes sort of the villain of the series. And King Richard became a standout, this, this evil King Richard, who actually is quite funny. <laughs> And it's just Galvin has these friends, and he has this love interest, Isabella, so now you have a woman of color as the leading lady and the love interest to the hero, and she's she's the one who kind of teaches him how to be tough. It's such a fun, it plays with really fun fantasy tropes, and it's such a fun show, and so smart, and the songs are really catchy. Kylie Minogue was on the premiere, premiere episode for season two, and it was a song, it was, they were in a forest, Richard and Galavant. And they were like, oh no, like, it's the Enchanted Forest, and the Enchanted Forest turned out to be a gay club in the middle of the forest. Oh my. With all these men. Yeah. And they're just singing the song to Galavan of, like, take his shirt off, and it's just all these, like, gay men in the middle of this medieval fantasy forest. And it's it's so funny. That's amazing. So it's kind of like, it's got that Robin Hood Monty Python. Yeah, like that Men in Tights type of yeah. A lot of anachronistic humor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very much like that, and so I'm really happy it's back. It's fantastic, and I think more people should give it a shot. I watched the first season last year, but I but I did it after the entire season premiered, so I, like, binged it on Hulu. Yeah, um, it's really easy to binge. Yeah, it's it's only eight half-hour episodes, right? And they yeah. pre- And they premiere two at a time. Yeah. So... Um, and doesn't it fill the spot on ABC between the, the hiatus of Once Upon a Time? Sort of, but Once Upon a Time isn't coming back until March, so okay. I don't know what this will extend all the way till March, but it's, it, and it's also, it has, like, references to Once Upon a Time sometimes, too. Yeah. It seems fun. like the kind of it's, show to partner with Once Upon a Time. Well, it's so. ABC and Disney, yeah. you know, going full Disney. Yeah. Um, and, like, songs by Alan Menken. How great. Yeah. And amazing. I think the executive producers also... Executive produced Tangled. I think so. Because I think too, Zachary yeah. Levi was actually supposed to be Gallivant, but oh. I, but I think like that's who, I think that's who they originally had in mind. But I think he was busy doing Broadway or something. I can see that, which is fine because the guy who's playing Gallivant is fantastic, mm-hmm. so it's okay. But yeah, this show is great. People need to give it more love and give it a shot because you might be surprised at how much you like it. I might. I have not seen it. Um, I didn't really know much about it other than. Other than it was, like, a comedy musical in set in fantasy, like, time period. So, and I only actually just heard about, like, that Take Off Your Shirt song. And it was, like, all over my Twitter feed. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> it's so great. It's, like, that is this show in a nutshell. And, like, how <laughs> great is that? Also, Galavant's, like, little sidekick is Lee Jordan from Harry Potter. Yep. Oh, my God, really? And, and uh, who did he play in Community? Pop, pop. Pop, pop. Pop, pop. Pop, pop. <laughs> Willoughby just hit the pop pop, yeah. by the way. He did like the whole hand gesture and everything. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's a great cast and it's really fun. So that's what I love. I'm happy it's back. Cool. Um, thank you, Anya. I will go next because I don't really have a love-hate pop culture thing. I'm just gonna rant about um, how I was not I was gonna go see my love hate basically is just like an experience I had yesterday. But it's was, about movies, so it's, it's about movies kind of. I haven't really been, like, caught up with pop culture. Nothing has really caught my eye this week, so I'm just going to read. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I apologize. <laughs> um, it was basically I was going to go see The Big Short with my mom yesterday, and I was really excited and stoked to see it because it is a movie directed by Adam McKay about, like, the um, collapse of Wall Street after, like... I actually saw it last night, so... Ooh, I was meant to see it last night, but... <laughs> what happened? A signed seating happens. I don't, like... That. That's my hate. I don't like sign seating in theaters because I, it was a movie for 7.45. We got there at like 7.20. And this theater is usually not that packed. It's kind of one of those indie theaters that you can like buy wine in and like drink inside. It's nice. Yeah. Um, it a lot of old people go there. 
but it was packed for some reason. Only front row seating was available, and I was like, I'm not going to do that, even though it probably won't, like, you know, attack my eyes too much. I still was just like, I just want to have fun and drink my wine and watch, like, Steve Carell and Christian Bale and Ryan Gosling talk about stocks. (laughs) So I was really upset because only the front row seatings were available, and I'm not going to buy tickets online for, like, an indie theater. Yeah. 10 minutes away from me. I was really upset. So that's my hate for this week. <laughs> Boo assigned seating, I know, which I, I think, I feel like that's becoming more of the norm. No, I don't know why it's becoming a norm. I think it's because of like online ticket sales, but I just, I don't like it. I like being yeah. able to get there early and like getting a seat, and, like sneaking in. That's how I watched Pirates of the Caribbean actually, because I bought it for some other movie and I snuck in and sat on the steps. So. Wow. I do well, HT is a little rebel over <laughs> <I know>. here. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, wait, I why didn't you buy a ticket? Oh, wait, was Pirates sold out? Pirates was sold out, and I okay. bought a ticket for like some other movie. I can't remember what it was, and then I snuck in and watched Pirates on the Steps. Seeing you can't do that now, because you get thrown yeah. out. Or people you will be like, why are you sitting out. on this, st- this step case, the staircase with like popcorn everywhere? Yeah, well, Big Short is pretty good, I will... Thanks. And I wanted to catch up because Golden Globes are tonight and I wanted to see at least, you know, half of the nominees, but I've been trying to do it. We watched Room on Friday night Ooh. and then Big Short last night, so. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Willoughby, what is your love hate for this week? Mine is the love uh for a TV show that was in the mid two thousands that is not on air anymore. It's Battlestar Galactica. Yes. The uh reboot from the nineteen seventy eight uh TV show. Um, I, a lot of people hate the ending. They thought it was, like, terrible. Um, I actually really like the ending. It's kind of like, the ending. it's like Lost, how people hated the Lost ending. I really liked the Battlestar Galactica ending and the Lost endings. Uh, a little bit of spoilers. I'm a big fan of the ancient aliens theory of, like, aliens coming down and teaching, like, primitive man, like, gods and aliens and stuff like that. And, like, how did we get this technology and stuff like that? And I think they, they did a really good job of kind of, like, molding that at the, in, at the end of the, the show. But overall, I really love the show as an experience of watching it. Um, I think that, you know, it's sci-fi and Universal, NBC Universal, um, which owns the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, it's definitely their strongest show I think they've ever produced, um, which is really funny considering, you know, they're the same network that produces three Sharknado movies. Um <laughs> And so, but Battlestar Galactica is steeped in Bush era politics. Mm. Like, yes. especially, you know, how they handle terrorists and how they handle prisoners and, you know, suspected pe- uh, criminals that, you know, you hear the word wiretapping a lot, you hear torture, you, hear, you know, they have their, they have their torture episode, they have their wiretapping episode, they have their, you know, they have their special, like, themes of, like, Bush era politics. Because uh, it came out, I think, in 2003, 2004, so it was like, in the middle of the 2000s. Um, it's definitely a post-9-11 show. Paranoia. Like, like oh yeah, because like, who's a Cylon? We don't know! Oh my gosh! Um, exactly. And, and that's a big threat throughout the entire series. And then in season three, it gets more mystical, more philosophical, and, you know, questions of like, how are, you know, the, the big quote is, you know, all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. And they kind of, they really start to bring that in in the third and fourth series with flashbacks to what happened and, um, you know, the first Cylon War and, Cy- and, you know, what happened before that too and, and then what happens after that, this world and stuff. And, uh, I re- and I just think that seeing it on Blu-ray, I, bought, I got the Blu-ray for Christmas. Uh, the, of the, the cause that's why this is coming up. That's now. Like, I should have said way. that. I should have said that. First of all. <laughs> oh. I got the I got the movie. I got the the TV series for Blu-ray for Christmas because it's no longer on Netflix. So um, I wanted to watch it again. Uh, it holds up uh, high definition brilliant. wise. Uh, production wise, I think the only the, the only downside to its production is the Cylons always kind of look a little too too fake. Um, yeah, too shiny. They're just they're you know uh, it's just because they didn't use people as robots like they did in the original series. Mm-hmm. They used just computer generated robots, um, and that that's the only like downside to watching a show from ten years ago is that sometimes the CGI is a little shitty. But the actual like the set of the Battlestar Galactica, all the different rooms, all the uniforms, everything is like so on point 
and everything works so well, and the, the writing holds up, the directing holds up. Like Edward James, almost you know, gives the greatest performances in this in this show. Yes, um, Leah Dama. Leah Dama well, is great. Not not Lee, uh, but Jamie Bamber is as Leah Dama is great. Um, Wait, not Lee. That's who, not who, who I wanted to about? say. Oh, I meant to say Commander Adama. Oh, Admiral Adama. Yeah, uh, he's great. Uh, Starbuck is great, played by Katie Sackhoff. She's brilliant. Um, all the supporting characters, you know, they're characters who you think are just going to be supportive throughout the first two seasons, and then they take in a larger role in the third and fourth. Um, and it's just so great. It's just such a great ensemble cast and an ensemble series that, um, you know, it's for anyone who loves sci-fi and, you know, space political dramas, this is perfect for them. Uh and best it, characters, Willoughby. Sorry? You forgot two of the best characters. Who are the two of the best characters? Uh, Gaius and Six. Oh, yeah, they're great. They're great. Uh, they're the best. Gaius Baltar is... Gaius Baltar! Is, uh, is one of the most complicated characters on that show. I love him. And, he, you know, he's, he, you just don't know what he's thinking. But you kind of do, because he's kind of insane. Uh, um, and he becomes a Jesus figure at some point. Uh, he really does. I love his ending with Six. I think... There, that was perfect. Don't yeah. spoil too much because I'm the only one here who has not seen oh, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. You I, need to. I know. I got recommended it so much. And I was going to watch it on Netflix, but now that it's off, it's kind of harder now. I can lend you Are Willoughby's DVDs? I yes. can because he got it for Christmas. Yes. <laughs> My dad's currently watching them, but once they're done, I can give them to you. Okay, yeah. And I'm it really comes with the two it. mini movies that they came out with, um, Razor and The Plan. Mm. Yeah. So, uh Blood and, uh, Battlestar Galactica is great, and everyone should watch it if they can get their hands on the on a Blu-ray set or a DVD set. Uh, it's great, and I don't care what people say about the ending. I don't understand what people had faults about it. It may be because I watched the extended version that they have on the Blu-ray, because it, it's like literally the last episode is called Daybreak, and it's two and a half hours long, because uh, it's like three one three forty-two minute episodes, but then it's an extended itself. Uh, on it's like one disc uh, of the of the Blu-rays. So yeah, that's what I'm uh, that's what I'm loving this week. All right. So we uh, that's the episode for today. I hope you enjoyed it, guys. Um, so I guess Anya usually does this, but please go ahead, Anya. Which part? Oh, the part where you ask us where we can find each other. <laughs> <laughs> so you can ask Anya to ask us. Yeah, well, it's like her thing. Yeah. that's adorable. It is kind of my thing. We gotta keep going, um, guys. <laughs> And that will continue into 2016, my thing. Um, Willoughby, where can they find the Millennial Falcon on the internet? They can find the Millennial Falcon on the internet at the Millennial Falcon on Facebook, uh, Falcon po- at Falcon Podcast on Twitter. The blog is the themillennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. We're also on SoundCloud, where you can find the audio files for each episode. And you can subscribe on iTunes. Please rate, review, and subscribe and tell your friends, tell your your parents' friends and your friends' parents. It's great. Mm-hmm. All right, and where can they find you? You can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. I'm at HTranBooey on Twitter. And I am at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. Hey. All right, this is our episode. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.